Well, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, I wanted to take a closer look at the cup that Jesus was to drink, you know, which he actually, as I learned through studying this, and we'll see, he was actually drinking his whole physical life here on earth, but it was just culminating now in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and at the crucifixion, crucifixion, but it was an ongoing thing. And what really kind of piqued my interest, I think, was that he prayed very fervently, right, to have this cup removed from him. So I was like, what really is that, was that? And uh, we saw it in Mark 14 where we're studying. We'll read verses 35 and 36 again just to bring our uh, memories back to where we were. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus was, you know, fervently praying to his father to, to, to not endure drinking this cup. And uh, to help us understand that, if you'll flip back to chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 35 through 41, it kind of brings some light on the sheds a little light on the cup there. So Mark ten thirty five says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Pretty bold, right? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to sit at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it, they became to be. They began to be indignant at James and John. So, when James and John asked to sit, to let him, let them sit with him in his glory, his answer answer was actually very startling, right? It, it, and it should startle us when you when you really look at that. When he said to them, "You don't know what you're asking for," um, and he he says that's when he throws in this thing of the cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank? So the world, you know, every believer has a cup to drink. Okay, you and I have one. We've all got our own. The cup Jesus was speaking here is speaking of here is only for followers of Christ, only for Christians. No unbelievers qualified to have a cup given by God to drink. And this is not the cup of salvation, uh, but rather it's, it's one that true followers of Christ start the day that you're saved. That's when you get it. It's a gift from God the day that you're saved. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world is that a gift, right? Have you ever thought about that? How is suffering, if you will, hard times, trials, testing, tribulation, how is that a gift? Makes you what? Makes you stronger? Okay, how? You all agree with that? It makes you stronger? You know? Okay, good, yeah. 
All right, good. Yeah, get rid of all that. So process in your mind for a minute, how does that go for you? You know, is it is it easy? No. You know, it's not easy, is it? I mean, uh, you know, I think of uh, if you had a big, really deep-rooted, let's just say on the side of your face, a big deep-rooted sore, you know, and you're always picking at it, and you finally get to the point to where you're going to pull that thing out. Right? Would that hurt? You know? I mean, that's it. You don't like that image? <laughs> All right, on your arm so you can cover it up, you know? But I mean, it would hurt, right? Well, the reason I said face, though, is because what's true about when we're going through that and it's molding us, it's purifying us, it's removing the, the, dross from our lives what's true typically all those around us can see it too right and uh, we want to do something else typically though we want to cover it up so but if it's on the face you're not getting away from but there's pain involved I guess is what I'm getting at with that and for some reason we typically don't like pain whether it's coming from we can sit here in in a bible study class and agree oh yeah that's what God does but you know what when when you're going through one of those times in the private of your home you and God it's not all what hunky-dory is that how you say it you know it's it hurts right it really does so um but we got to understand if the end result is to be conformed more to the image of Christ then it really is a good thing so it's not a one-time event it's whatever comes along during the lifetime, our whole lives. And it's different things for different people, certainly, right? And um, for the followers of Christ, for us as believers, our cup doesn't end until we die or Jesus comes back, whichever of those happens first. And I would vote for you to come back, and, you know, right now would be a good time from my perspective. But my wife and I were talking about that last night, um, and, you know, I said, can't even remember why we were talking about it, but I said, I don't know. All I know is I'm saved and I'm ready, you know. Uh, so that would be nice that if that were to happen. But we can get a, a good broad spectrum of what that cup looks like by actually looking at Paul's letters. And when he wrote, you know, what we often called the death row epistles, and, and um, he doesn't use the word cup, but he conveys that same idea. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then uh, and he, the writer of Hebrews kind of takes us there as well in Hebrews 12, 1, where he, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? But I think the, the pinnacle for Paul, turn to 2 Corinthians 11. You know, Paul was fighting his fight, his course, his race. He was drinking his cup. And I think he gives us some uh, elements of his cup in Second Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Second uh, Corinthians 11:23 says, "Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings." And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. 
Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Anybody want to swap cups? <laughs> you know, I mean, Paul, man, look at that. And, and we know how he, he lived his life, right? And boy, he was really, you know, he had a, a cup to drink. So now <clears throat> go back to Mark 10. And in verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So it's interesting that in the original language there, that's a present tense. Again, like I said, it's not a future tense. It's not something that we're going to do later. It's something that is happening now. The cup that I am currently drinking, that could be translated. <clears throat> uh, Jesus was already drinking the cup, something reserved for him exclusively as we, last time we looked at this, we talked about some of the elements of that cup would have been the sins of the world being placed on him, right? And um, the cup, some other things that his consisted of were um, the sins of the world. How about this one in his cup? Living every second of every day in sinless perfection. That's, that's tough, right? The 40-day temptation by Satan... Uh, he was uh, victorious over all of the earthly opponents that he had. His weariness from his how busy his ministry was. That's one thing that I think we've really learned from Mark is that Jesus was a busy, busy person. You know, and the weariness that, that he endured had to be hard. I mean, do you guys get worn out the busier days you have? You know, and the, the older we get, for you young people, I hate to tell you, but you get wore out more. You think you're worn out now? Just wait, right? And um, <clears throat> the culmin- that's why, I, thank God, we get children when we're younger, if we ha- you know, so we could never handle them being older. We just went to a youth football game yesterday, and we were beat down just after that. <laughs> of course, it was about 400 degrees out, no shade, and... <laughs> You see how we gripe, right? Yes, sir. Is our, our, so you're saying our cup is our struggles? It's, I don't know if I would use the word struggle because we're the ones that make it a struggle. It's the things that we deal with individually in life that conform us more to the image of Christ. The trials. Trials, yeah. Because I think we're the ones that turn a trial into a struggle, Right. Because, I mean, if we've got the same spirit that Jesus had, should it be a struggle? Maybe mentally, but um, should we take that? I guess when I hear the word struggle, I automatically go to sin. Because if I'm, you know what I mean? I'm, typically, if I'm struggling, I'm, I'm going to be sinning. I'm going to be not wanting to accept whatever it is that God's wanting to change in my life. I'm going to fight that. <clears throat> what do we call that? Okay. All right. He and I have talked about this. <laughs> so, all right. So, the culmination by of Jesus's cup, of course, was yet to to occur. Right? I mean, that's that's coming. And Matthew's account uh, in Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty-two, uh, Matthew puts an emphasis on the future climax 
um, when Jesus answers in his answer in Matthew, he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And James and John, you know, they, they had no idea. You know, they, they were asking concerning what w- was required to sit at his right hand, you know, they, in his glory. And, uh, or claiming they were able to do whatever was necessary to be able to make that happen. Um, but Jesus, he does inform them that they're going to be drinking a cup. And, of course, we, we'll look at in a second how that turned out for them. But um, And theirs would be an ongoing cup as well. Um, it's interesting that our cups are determined by the Father, as we've said. You know, you've got yours, I've got mine. We may have some of the same things in there, but individually we have different ones. We haven't all suffered in the same way, such as James, his cup ended when his hair had chopped his head off, right? Or John's cup was ending when he was stranded by himself on an island, and Peter's ended, uh, you know, when he was uh, crucified. So yours and mine may end differently. Um, and the interesting thing of most of the cup verses are framed with a question or a statement about being able. Keep that in mind there, about being able. And uh, in the Mark passage, Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup? And James and John, they, they replied with quite, uh, ignorance, really, and they say, "Oh yeah, we're able." And it's a, it's vital for our understand, understanding to note that the words "to be able" have the sense of having the capacity to do something. It's actually um, that same root word for dynamite, having the power to be able to do it. That's and so think about what Jesus is saying. Do you really have the capacity, the power to do this? That's what he, oh yeah, we got that. You know, not even a second thought, you know. And how many times have you done that with God? You know, God's working in your life and, oh yeah, you know, we jump, right? We jump with the Peter type um, impulse and it usually, at least for me, that usually is not how it pans out as I continue to walk. And then, then, of course, in God's providence and shaping, he then uses that to humble, right? When he shows us, yeah, we jumped out in this, in this arrogant pride. Oh, yeah, I can do it. You know, and then we typically, or at least for me, I get humbled when that happens. But um, So think about this passage in, in John 13. Look at John 13, 31. <clears throat> this is immediately after Judas is dismissed from the Passover meal. And John thirteen thirty one says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is, is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now remember, Peter and James and John had already seen him glorified at the transfiguration, right, in, in Mark chapter 9. They'd seen his glory. If Jesus had not continued to speak in John 13 here, they most likely would have jumped up from the table, you know, the the Passover meal here, expecting that same transformation to take place again. Boom, right there. Because, I mean, that's how he's talking, you know, and they've seen him like that. And so maybe he's getting ready. You know, I could just see Peter just jumping up. Wow, we get to see that again. 
right? But instead, Jesus revealed the truth that just shook them to their core and especially shook Peter in verse 33 of John 13 there. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That phrase, you cannot come, is the same verb form that that he used in Mark 10, that word that we get the word dynamite, you are not able. You do not have the power. You do not have the capacity to come and do this. And it's not a lack of permission from Jesus. It's an utter lack of capacity. And that had to have just floored them. You, you really don't know what you're talking about, guys. You're not able to do this. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus answered Peter in verse 36. We could read it like this. Where I'm going, you, Peter, cannot. You're not able. You don't have the capacity to follow. But you will follow afterward. But right then, he couldn't do it. So they didn't have the capacity to drink his cup, and really nobody ever has. You know, and we, you and I, I mean, it's hard, at least for me, I should say, to mentally grasp how much Jesus was able to endure, uh, how much he was able to be tempted and endure. Um, when, I, when I measure or try and measure myself, if he's the bar, you know, and you, we see what he endured, man, I am way, way, way down here, you know, woefully inadequately. And, um, you know, this we see this um, even knowing that his most horrendous portion of that cup was coming to a head at the cross. And he understood that. That's why his prayers in Gethsemane were the way they were, right? The core of his intense prayers was, Abba, Father, please if possible, let's not go through this. And that is, um, uh, I think, what really tormented him the most and grieved him. In Luke 22, uh, 44, he describes it as being in agony in his prayer. And, you know, that's the passage that talks about the vessels in his head bursting into sweats of uh, blood. And, you know, if you read up on that, Medically speaking, that is possible. But have any of us, have you ever prayed, have you ever been that troubled with your temptation that you've bled, uh, your sweat turned into blood? You know, of course not, right? We haven't agonized like that. And and he, he was in that kind of an agony in his prayer. Um, but to some degree... We really won't ever get there because we're protected by our loving Heavenly Father, right? But it's hard for me to comprehend the weight of being, knowing that this is what God has called me to do and, you know, struggling with it so much that I would be where he was at. But, you know, technically speaking, I think we also need to understand Technically, the cup could be removed, right? God could have said, all right, come on, and just taken him to heaven right there. But that would mean that Scripture would be broken, which we know it can't. Jesus would be outside the Father's will, which we know would never happen. So, really, there was no other way, and Christ knew that. Nobody would ever be saved if Jesus refused to drink the cup. Um, And so... 
this is almost, I don't know how to reconcile this. When you go from that agonizing prayer to he has it settled. If I could be one millionth to the degree of obedience that takes place next, right? He has it settled and he moves from there. Okay, guys, let's go. And, and right out to the arrest. He has it settled in his mind. You talk about an act of obedience to go from that. You know, I would need to, you know, go into a, a coma for a few days and <laughs> sleep it off, you know, or whatever. But he finished drinking the cup that the Father had given him up to the point of the crucifixion, you know, and, and he was just so obedient that he just gets up from there and um, and moves on. And um, so... I think we should really, I hope that causes you to marvel at what he did. You know, it really helped me understand the depth of his sacrifice. That's why I kind of wanted to look into it a little further. So we can go back to Mark 14 now. Any questions on that for you guys? Just a comment. Imagine the agony that God the Son, the sinless, sinless God the Son, in his humanity and in his beauty, agonizing over the wrath of a holy God mm. about to be poured out on him, becoming sin, not sinning, but becoming sin. Mm-hmm. I can't fathom it. Yeah. And you're a smart guy, so I certainly can't fathom <laughs> it. I don't think so, but just, I, that, that's really hard to... It really is. I mean, that's one of those things that really should just put us on our knees in, in an attitude of thanksgiving and adoration and he, awe. He walked to that with joy. Yeah. He left that garden settled yeah. and walked to the cross with joy. Yeah. I mean, what a lesson for us, right, of how to respond. Yes, sir. Philippians 2 says that, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he starts by saying, Paul says, have this attitude in ourselves, which is in Christ. So it is something we're to aspire to. Mm -hmm. We can't do it like he did, but consider that. And why can why should we aspire to that? Because it's commanded there, right? But I guess let me say that differently. How? What gives us the capacity to even be able to do that? The Holy Spirit. You know, do are we filled with the same Spirit that Christ was? You know, and that makes when we sin even more horrendous, doesn't it? The fact that we don't have to. Yeah, that's good. I mean, those are humbling things, are they not? Um, when we think about it like that. So, all right, um, well, that being settled then, again, look back at Mark 14. We'll move on. They're still in the garden. We didn't finish that, but uh, we'll move there in verse 41. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him, with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. 
And when he came, he went up to, to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So not only just after midnight in the garden, Jesus has just endured the ultimate temptation to not drink the cup. But now he's going to experience the ultimate betrayal. And uh, he didn't hide, right? He didn't go the other way when he saw this crowd coming. He didn't try and escape as the soldiers were approaching. Instead, he boldly went forward, right? Boldly went forward to confront them, knowing that, you know, he knew they'd been guided there by Judas, right? So his arrest really set into motion, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, rapid-fire series of events that culminated in, in his crucifixion. Really, this is hard for me to get my mind around. Later that same day, he was going to be crucified. I remember when Shane preached through this section in Luke years ago, I was astounded, and I know I'd read that so many times, but I was astounded that this is all taking place from late Thursday night. Now we're shortly after midnight, and, you know, it's a long section in Scripture that'll be weeks and weeks, but this is just a few hours that takes place. But, you know, and he hasn't rested, right? Um, you know, Friday morning, you know, the disciples, they'd been asleep, but Jesus wasn't. You know, he had to be physically exhausted. He didn't pull out the God trump card and, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to conjure up my God side. And, you know, that's not how he operated, right? He was a man physically exhausted at this point. I mean, how, do you, how are you guys functioning at, after midnight? You know, after a day like this, much less. You know, that meal goes on for hours. What happens when you eat for hours and hours? Well, hopefully you don't, but what happens... <laughs> You know, you get tired, don't you? I mean, all I, I, at least this it happens to me when I, if I eat too much, I go comatose, right? Why is that? Because your body takes all of that energy and puts it towards digestion, you know. So, but Jesus, the, the disciples, evidently they ate too much because they all went to sleep, right? But Jesus, he was agonizing. It wasn't like he was just out there saying, you know, some. Lord's prayers, you know, and that kind of... He was agonizing, and, and he wasn't exhausted, and, and here he goes. I mean, I'm sure he was exhausted, but he wasn't stopping. And I love the way verse 43 starts. And instead of resting, immediately, it says, while he was still speaking. So right away, and we saw that early on in Mark, did we not? That That's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. You know, he's a man of boom, boom, boom. So while they were still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. So the quietness of the night, they're in the garden. We said a couple of weeks ago this was a fenced-in area, you know, private area. And, and so it would have been a really neat place to go and have time alone with God. And, and that's what they were doing. But immediately, here comes the crowd. And, and so this quiet of the night is abruptly shattered by this crowd of, of menacing people. And... Um, 
It's interesting that all four of the gospel writers explicitly state with almost a measure of disbelief, Judas, one of the twelve. You know, we well, we, we know that because we just read it. But think of these guys when they were writing it, right? It was just like almost, wow, you're kidding me. Look, that's Judas that's doing this. You know, they all write it that way. So, and if you think about, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that um, think what Judas had been through with Jesus. You know, seeing all the miracles, um, and, and he turns his back on God for money. What today causes people to turn their back on God? I guess money would be one today, wouldn't it? Well, I'm going to take that job. You know, it's not real glorifying. I've got to do a lot of inappropriate things in order to get it. But, man, look at the paycheck. I can give more to the church if I do that. You know, right? What causes us to do those things? Selfishness, certainly a good big one. You know, I mean, I, I hate to pound Judas because how many times do I act similar, right, by not really honoring God with my life and maybe slighting in this area in order to gain personally? What else? What causes us? What other things would cause us to turn our backs on God? Fear of man. Fear of man. Yeah, we certainly see that with these guys, you know, with the mob that's coming. Why'd they do it at night? Fear of man, right? Certainly the fear of man. That's probably a big one on the job, isn't it? You know, oh, they won't like me if, you know. Um, yeah, that's a, um, there's actually a couple of really good books on that. Ed Welsh has one called When People Are Big, God Is Small. And then Lou Priolo has one uh, called People Pleasing and he gives an inventory. I'll bring the little test sometime if y'all want to take that. You can find out whether or not you're a people pleaser. And um, I've given that test to hundreds of people, and nobody's ever not been one. So maybe we just won't bring it. Just assume that you are. <laughs> um, but Judas comes, you know, into the garden accompanied with um, a, a crowd with uh, swords and clubs. And just think a couple of days before, what was the crowd doing as he entered Jerusalem? Praising him, right? Uh, his triumphal entry. And now, instead of praise, they're coming to attack. And, and they come with an overwhelming show of force. The, it says the, the things they came with are short, double-edged swords of the Romans, wooden clubs from the temple. John tells us they had torches, torches and lanterns. You know, they were going to find him. They were on a search party. And... Um, Mark identifies them as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And this is the representation, as we looked at you know, earlier, uh, of the Sanhedrin, which, interestingly, you know, we've, as we looked at that in the past, those guys, they, were, they hated each other. And yet, here they come in unity to get Jesus. What a, you know, what a picture. Um, they're they're at odds with each other, yet they're willing to lay all those things aside and uh, become motivated in unity for several factors, really. First, they, they feared that Jesus' unprecedented popularity would re- ignite a revolution among the people, causing Rome, and I remember when we looked at this a few months ago, to, this would cause Rome to retaliate, and um, they would lose their high-ranking positions, right? And secondly, they uh, came to 
together like this because they controlled the temple. The chief priests and the Sadducees, you know, they were really ticked off when Jesus came in and turned that whole system upside down for them. And thirdly, um, the religious leaders uh, deeply resented his public's defiance of their rabbinic tradition. You know, so they wanted him out of here, right? You know, they were jealous of his miraculous powers. They were fearful of his influence over the people. And um, they found themselves united in a common way, you know. And that causes me just to go, wow. You know, the fact that they could look past what divided them and come together because of the hatred that they had for Christ. Isn't that astounding? Um, So verse 44 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, we need to remember that in this crowd with all of them and then the 11 and Jesus, you know, he, Jesus looked and dressed like any other first century Jewish man. Nothing about his physical appearance distinguished him as being divine, right? He wasn't glowing, you know, and had on these priestly robes and stuff. Isaiah 53 tells us, you know, he was a very common looking man. Have you ever had people ask you, you know, what do you think Jesus looks like? My first response is, well, nothing like the American pictures, you know, because none of them have him looking like a Middle Eastern Jew. If you want to know what he looks like, go to Israel and look at a 33-year-old Jewish man, you know, pretty, you know, I mean, you know how we can, I mean, we can tell race a lot of times, right, by skin color, shape of face, and, you know, Asians, we can tell from the deposits under their eyes, and if you ought to look at, anybody ever seen Ken Ham's uh, One Race video? Um, it's fabulous. I mean, I, I just, I wish that I, I had or somebody would, you know, I don't have the resources to do this, but if somebody could get a prime time, you know, when would that be? Nine o'clock Friday night, ABC or whatever, and show that video. That would solve all these race relation problems we have. We're all one. You know, there is no... Other, I love the way he does that, you know. I want to get off on a tangent here, but I mean, I'm Caucasian, which means white, right? means white. Well, that paper's white. How close? Not very, is nobody in here is that white if you're Caucasian. And the same thing with, with black. This is black. I've never met a black person whose skin is as black as that is. And Ken Ham goes into to all that in that. That would solve it, right? If we're all one race. So Jesus looked just like all the other ones. So they had to have off and wondered, why is he going to go up and kiss him? Well, that's the reason why. they wouldn't. These guys didn't all know who he was in the dark anyway. So in the middle of the night, it would have been hard for them to tell him from his disciples, actually. So Judas comes up with the brilliant idea, okay, I'll give you a signal. Whoever I kiss, that's him. And in the Middle Eastern culture, kissing was a sign of respect and affection. Have you ever been overseas and gotten the kiss? You know, in Romania, they give it on both sides, you know, and you just you just go with it, you know. And uh, I kind of end up bumping faces. <laughs> you just got to let the guy do it, you know, let them lead. So this is very common in other parts of the world. Um, it expresses devotion and love, um, which... Since it 
expresses devotion and love, it really shows the depth of Judas's hypocrisy and treachery, doesn't it? He's going to use a sign that expresses love and affection to be a traitor. And um, that, that's just bad. <laughs> so after coming into the garden, of course, we know from one of the other accounts, that, uh, uh, one of the other writers, that Judas is inspired by Satan. He's motivated by greed. And he says, you know, the one I kissed, that's him. And, and that word, the Greek word for kissed, is really intensified. It's an intensified verb of the word kiss, meaning to show continual affection and to kiss fervently. So it was a, it was a long, dramatic show of false affection here, um, making it last long enough for the soldiers to be it wasn't a walk up. That's the guy, you know. It was a, an embrace and probably both cheeks and, you know, long enough for everybody to get the idea that that's who it was. So... Again, that takes place, and Jesus shows no resistance and displayed no anger and no anxiety. He had settled that there in the garden a few minutes before, and he is moving forward, right? Instead, he continued to place his trust in in his Father. So um, I had to ask, really stop when I was studying this on my own and ask myself the question, Tim, do you continually with unwavering trust, move forward with the Father when trials hit you. And, um, you know, Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, he, he brings up a point of, you know, he asks a question, do you trust God more in the big trials or the little trials? And, you know, I think most people would say in the big trials, but, you know, how do we, do you, do you push through those? You know, I, I, this this section of scripture has really encouraged me in a in a different way. I have never looked at it like this. You know, in, at this depth to try and have that resolve in my life when I'm pushing forward in trials, and it's super easy to stand here and say that I could do that. You know, bottom line is I don't know. I just pray that I will be able to uh, when I get in that type of situation, but. He did it unwavering in his trust for his heavenly father. Um, in verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest on, and cut off his ear. And um, Luke's account says, seeing Jesus being arrested, the disciples, that, disciples asked, Lord, shall we strike him with the sword? But instead of waiting for an answer, we know from John, our boy Peter impulsively draws the sword. And you know what? After looking at this, I think he was wholeheartedly trying to chop that dude's head off, and he missed. Nobody's good enough with a sword in the dark to cut the ear off. They just aren't. I don't care. We know Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a sword fighter, right? So he was intent. He was trying to get the guy's head off of his body, but um, he missed, and um, his reckless actions were. I mean, we got to give him credit, right? They were motivated by desire. On his part, to prove his his courage and his loyalty to the Lord, although we know he's going to fail miserably uh, in a couple hours. Um, But Jesus puts an end to his brash heroics and tells him to stop. No more of this in Luke 22, it says. And 
And um, in an act of divine mercy, Jesus puts the guy's ear back on, kind of somehow recreates it. You know, boy, what do you think that would do to the guys that saw that? Certainly, I don't think the whole crowd saw that. But if you were close enough, you know, and the guy's ears laying on the ground there, I don't know how many blood vessels are in that part of the head, but I would imagine that there's a good bit of blood gushing and Jesus picks the guy's ear up and sticks it back on there, you know. He didn't stitch, Dr. Ryan could stitch your ear back on, but uh, he didn't stitch it. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah, he loves doing stitches, don't you? Yeah, we went one where my wife cut her finger one night and I was talking to him the next week, and we were griping about where we went to get it sewed back together. And, and he said, oh, you should have come to me. I love doing that. <laughs> so we know for the future we will do that. Hopefully nobody will get cut like that again. But, um, you know, Jesus miraculously places his ear back on. And uh, that had, I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us if, that, that guy's name was, I'm not real sure how to pronounce it, Malchus perhaps, and you know, would that cause you to think, whoa, maybe the, maybe I better back away from this mob of uh, attackers, you know, and try and follow him or something. But um, these other guys needed to understand, Peter and the disciples, what they needed to understand. And, and I don't know if they got this or not, but maybe you could help me with this. But they needed to understand that this was all part of God's plan, right? And what do we call that? We call that the... The the sovereignty of God, right? Working out. We have a hard time looking at hard situations as the sovereignty of God. But that's what was going on here. This had to take place or what? You and I wouldn't be sitting in this classroom today, would we? Because we wouldn't be saved. And so why would we be gathered here to talk about this? So this was all part of God's divine plan as they moved, moved forward in of course, his, Jesus' point was that suffering had been foretold, you know, centuries before by the prophets. You know, Peter's actions were very well-intentioned, but in reality, he was fighting against God, right, by doing what he was doing, trying to stop it. And uh, John even tells us in his account in John 18, verse 11, he says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So... Seeing the formidable, well-armed, highly trained force that assembled to arrest him, the the Jewish leaders who stood before him were all there, and Jesus says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords to capture me? Now, this is a bit of irony, I think, maybe on Jesus' part, you know, uh, as he starts to, you know, look at the situation in the midst of all this chaos. He stands, Jesus asks that question. You know, that guy's over there going, oh, you know, and everybody's moving around trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, he wasn't a violent criminal, right? They had many, many, many other opportunities to come and arrest him, but they didn't. And the word robber that he used there is typically translated as an armed bandit or a gangster, we could call it. You know, somebody that would try and escape, somebody that would try and and resist being arrested. But Jesus had not been hiding. And, I mean, he goes on in verse 49 and says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. And then he ends that with, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So, you know, his statement really exposed their their cowardice. 
you know, you had to come out here in the guise of darkness to try and get me when you had every ample opportunity to do it there. Um, so he questioned really, or his question really exposed their fear of people and um, they didn't want to endure the public uh, reaction that would come against them for doing it there. But we need to understand, looking at this, that everything was running in accord with the Father's perfect schedule. Even their hostility toward him was all on God's perfect schedule. God had sovereignly used, this is hard to understand, that God had sovereignly used the wicked schemes of those men to accomplish his eternal purposes, right? And think about that in our lives, that God uses the events in our lives to accomplish his eternal purposes. And we knew that it couldn't happen before, looking back, because we've got the great benefit of having the whole word of God, that it couldn't happen before it happened because Jesus says in John 10, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So everything in his death, Jesus did under the, his own perfect control in submission to the Father, right? So... We'll stop right there this morning with fresh in our minds the scene. We've moved out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is being um, arrested now by the mob. And um, remember, rapid fire events from here forward. Any other questions or comments? Nothing? All right. Well, you're dismissed.